Hey, New Life Gillette Church, we are thrilled you decided to listen to our teaching on your favorite podcast app. If you made a decision to follow Christ today, would you let us know by visiting yes.newlifegillette.com? Here is this week's teaching. I, I always love talking about uh, a church plant uh, because I really believe it's going to make a lasting impact there. But it's also an honor to be able to teach this morning. It's an honor to be able to share with you guys. And for those of you who are watching it online, it's an honor to be able to share with you. I'm just glad that everyone is able to join us. We're just beginning to come out of Thanksgiving season now. Uh, a couple weeks ago, one, one and a half, couple weeks ago. And some of you guys, I'm thinking, have already made the full transition into Christmas season. You already have your lights up on your house. Your tr Christmas tree is up. Uh, you're already listening to Christmas music. I can't pull that off personally. I, I can't handle a full month straight of Christmas music. I, that, that would drive me crazy. Uh, some of you started listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. I, I'm not going to comment on that. I have lots of thoughts. I'm not going to comment on that. I could not do that personally. But I do want to take some time today and talk a little bit more about Thanksgiving because I love the practice of gratitude that we do. I don't think we should limit it to just once a year. I don't think that's something, I think it's too important for that. So I want to talk today a little bit more about gratitude. Let me introduce this topic to you, and I'm guessing that a lot of you may be able to relate to this on one level or another. For so much of my life, I have lived under the illusion that there is something just around the corner, something out there that is really, really important that's coming, and it's more important than whatever it is I'm doing right now. There's something just around the corner that's going to make all the difference for me. It's that thing that I desire. It's the event that I'm looking forward to. It's that whatever, that something that's supposed to bring meaning and fulfillment and is going to give me the significant moment that I've been looking for. And it isn't here, it's, it's somewhere out there. I'll, I'll give you an example of how this story has played out in my own life. And I think that a lot of you may be able to have a very similar version of your own story here. Uh, let's take the category of ministry for me. When I was in high school, I knew I was going into ministry. I, I was pretty confident about that, but I was still having to take classes that weren't very relevant to the field of ministry. I, I was, for example, I had to take calculus. Uh, not a big fan of calculus. I, I still have yet to need it in ministry. And, and so I was thinking, man, I, I'm not going to use this. Why am I having to take calculus? What am I doing here? Well, if only I can get to college. Then I'm going to be taking classes that actually matter to me. If only I can get to college, that's going to make the difference. And then when I got to college, I thought, well, if only I can do real-world ministry. And then when I graduated college, I took a staff position on a church, and I was doing real-world ministry. And then I thought, well, if only I can lead my own church. And then I was able to lead my own church, and I thought, well, if only I can hire another staff member, that's going to be it. That's going to do it. Let's take the category of sports. I've done sports most of my life. I love doing sports. It's always a ton of fun for me. In high school, I did cross country and track. And I thought, well, if only I can run in college, that's going to make me faster. That's going to be it. 
And then I ran cross country and track in college. And I realized, man, running actually isn't that much fun. Where I exaggerated that. And so I thought, well, if only I can become a rock climbing guide. So then I became a rock climbing guide. And I thought, well, if only I can climb that mountain. Then I was able to climb that mountain. And I thought, well, if only I can ski off that mountain. And on and on and on and on. And now I'm in Casper. And I'm playing a bunch of pickleball. And I'm thinking, if only I can get better at pickleball. That's going to do it for me. And I found myself... Whatever season I was in, wishing that current season away, waiting for the next one to come. One day, just around the corner, there will be that something, that achievement, that friendship, that possession, that vacation, that relationship, that something that's supposed to fill the emptiness on the inside. But just around the corner, there'll just be another challenge, another vision, another dream, another goal, or another perceived prize. See, looking back at my own life, I see a real weakness. Because it's always been about what I want, what my desires are, my goals, my dreams, my passions. And whatever it is that I get, just around the corner, it always feels like there's going to be something better. There's got to be something better than whatever it is that I have right now. And if we aren't careful, we can find ourselves wishing the current season away, living discontented lives filled with ingratitude. What does culture do? Culture completely and totally feeds into this mindset. Every TV show, every advertisement, everything on social media, all promise something better out there. And I think it's tougher than it's ever been to be content and grateful for our lives because it's so easy to get on Facebook or be scrolling through Instagram and point to the next person and say, if only I had that, that would be it for me. That would make me grateful. That would make me happy. That would make me content. It's such an illusion that we live under. Take Netflix. It just keeps on running. And the next show is 99% recommended that I'm going to like it. It must be God's will. And so we need to be careful how we approach this because we may spend our entire lives wishing this season away, living discontented lives. But I would argue one of the biggest keys to this to living a contented life is gratitude. Is making a regular practice of gratitude in our lives. And so I want to talk a little bit more about this today. And to do that, I'm going to share with you guys a story that comes from the book of Luke. It's, uh, if you're following along in your own Bible, I'll be reading out of Luke chapter 17, and I'll be starting right here in verse 11. It's a very poignant story that comes from the New Testament. It's about a small group of very desperate men who approached Jesus for healing. And they're all desperate because they all have something in common. They all have one thing in common. They're all lepers. To fully appreciate this story, you've got to understand a little bit about leprosy back in the day. And so let me take a moment or two to describe to you what it was like to experience it back in Jesus' day. It would begin with, a general sense of fatigue or pain in the joints. And then patches and nodules would begin to form on the skin. These 
patches would turn into lumps that would eventually make them unrecognizable. The lumps would begin to ulcerate, and there would be a foul stench coming from anyone with leprosy. They would lose their eyebrows, and they would begin to form lumps on their vocal cords. Their voices would go hoarse, uh, their, their, their voices would rasp, and their breathing would wheeze. And then would come the loss of sensation. And this is arguably the most dangerous part about leprosy. Uh, Paul Brandt was a guy who lived in the 20th century and did a lot of work on the disease of leprosy. He, in fact, lived in a leper colony in a very impoverished area for a while. And he tells a story about how at one point he was approaching a locked gate. It was locked with a padlock and he couldn't get it open. A young boy approaches and he sticks his finger into the padlock and grinds his finger around until he gets it to open. When he pulls his finger out, it's been gnashed down to the bone and he didn't realize it because of the loss of sensation. Uh, Paul Brandt also wrote that lepers would lose their fingers and toes. And for the longest time, people didn't know why until Paul and some of his researchers lived in this colony and stayed up awake at night watching the lepers. And they noticed that unless someone chased the rats away, the rats would come and gnaw on their fingers and toes, and they couldn't feel it at all. And so they'd wake up with parts of their body missing. This is the kind of thing we're dealing with here. In Jesus' day, the first signs of leprosy was like a death sentence to these people. Eventually, it would result in a loss of mental, mental functioning, coma, and then death. If you were a leper in Jesus' day, you couldn't go any, near anyone who wasn't a leper. You couldn't go into town. If anyone spotted you, they could pelt you with eggs or stone you. Uh, if a leper went into your house, it was considered unclean and you had to burn your house down. If you were touched by a leper, you couldn't be in society for a while. You're considered defiled and had to be outside of society to make sure that you weren't infected at all. They couldn't touch anyone who wasn't a leper. Imagine for a moment what that would be like to not know the embrace of a spouse or the hug from a parent for sometimes years and years and years. Sometimes since childhood, they would experience this. And not just that, there was also a, a moral stigma attached to it. People would uh, believe that if you were a leper, you must have done something to deserve that. You must have done something wrong to deserve uh, leprosy and, and that disease. And so there was this moral stigma attached to it. Other diseases, if you were cured, you were, you were considered healed. Leprosy, if you were cured, you were still considered uncleansed, and you had to go to a priest to be cleansed from leprosy at that point. And so... The most comparable example I can think of in our modern day would be AIDS. There's a moral stigma attached to it. It's fatal and it's highly contagious. That's the kind of thing we're dealing with here. And that's where we're going to jump into this story and what Jesus is going to encounter. As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, Ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So we have ten men, all of them are lepers, and they have to stop a distance away from Jesus. They aren't allowed to approach him. One first century source wrote that uh, people with leprosy weren't allowed to get within 50 yards of anyone who did not have leprosy. So they, they stop a little bit of a distance back, and, and their throats are raspy. They, they can't really speak very loudly, and so they're crying out and screaming out as much as they possibly can for Jesus. And then it says this. He looked at them 
and said, go show yourselves to the priests. And I want to pause there because this is an interesting part of the story. They haven't been healed yet. They still have leprosy. They're still incredibly disfigured. They have lumps all over their bodies, still in great pain. And Jesus says to them, go show yourselves to the priest now. And then what this is, it's a test of faith. It's a test of faith. Would they choose to obey Jesus and start heading toward the priest, even though they hadn't been healed yet? Would they choose to trust Jesus? Well, they did, and they obeyed him. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. Now, I want to pause there, because this is such an enormous statement. They were cleansed of their leprosy. He just, he seems to brush over that. That is enormous. That's, that's such a huge deal. I mean, as they're walking, something happens. Their disfigured faces smooth out. Their, their throats stop hurting. They can actually speak and breathe normally. Their mutilated stumps start to grow back, and they can run and shout and yell and go back to their families and, and hug their kids and embrace their spouses and do all these things that people usually take for granted. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. We have 10 lepers and one man chooses to turn back. 10 people have been healed miraculously and one turns back to thank Jesus. I wonder why the nine didn't turn back. Luke doesn't tell us. We, we don't know for sure. Maybe they were in too much of a hurry. Maybe they felt like they deserved that. We don't know. But we do know one man turned back, and Luke makes an amazing statement here. This man was a Samaritan. He was a Samaritan. You see, Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. They were considered enemies of God, enemies of the Israelite nation, enemies of the Jewish people. And this man is a Samaritan, and he turns back to go thank Jesus, who is Jewish. Maybe that's why he was so grateful. Maybe he felt that as a Samaritan and a leper, he was the last one who deserved Jesus' healing power and deserved to actually be able to be in the presence of Jesus and touch Jesus. Maybe that was why. It's funny how humans can pray and so desperately want something, receive it, and then take it for granted. One guy turned back. The other nine were apparently Jewish and apparently felt like they were entitled to that. Apparently felt like, man, they were in too much of a hurry to turn back to Jesus now. They had lives to get back to. And then this next statement is a fairly unique passage in scripture because in it, we can actually see a measure of hurt in the words of Jesus. Jesus asked, didn't I heal 10 men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Jesus is saying, where's everyone else? Where's my brothers? Where's my children? Where's all the other guys that I healed? You can hear the hurt in his words. And then he, he calls this Samaritan a foreigner. And what he's communicating there is that as a foreigner, he would be the only one out of these 10 people that wouldn't be expected to know enough to come back. And so this foreigner, 
who, who would be not expected at all to come back. I mean, he didn't know any better. He's the one who chose to do it anyways. And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. The text literally says, your, fa- your faith has saved you. Luke wants us to understand that there's more than physical healing that has take, taken place. This man, through this encounter with Jesus, has received more than just physical life. He's also received eternal life. It's monumental. He chose to turn back and say thank you to Jesus, and he receives eternal life because of it. All because he had a heart of gratitude. So how about you? Where is your heart on the gratitude business? Are you one of the ones who will turn back? Who will be, even after you've gotten through all these hard things and challenges, you're still willing to turn back to Jesus and say thank you? Where's your heart at? Or if you're honest with yourself, are you one of the nine? Are you one of the nine who who says, you know, Jesus, if I get needy, I'll be in touch. I got an agenda today. I got stuff to do. The the ability to genuinely express gratitude to God is one of the most fundamental signs of spiritual wellness. It runs all through the Bible. The psalmist says to God, let me live that I may continue to praise you. It's an incredibly important theme. And the issue with it is you can't just flip a switch and start being filled with gratitude. It doesn't work like that. You can't just force yourself to be filled with gratitude in Thanksgiving. It's, it flows out of a certain vision of seeing life, seeing all the good things around us and seeing all, all the goodness that God has given to us, seeing everything as a gift. It flows out of that vision. One of the best thoughts that I know on this topic comes from a guy named G.K. Chesterton. And every night he would say this, here ends another day during which I've had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world around me. Tomorrow begins another day. Why am I allowed to? Why am I allowed to? We can't just flip a switch. We can't just force gratitude. And so what I want to do now is, with the moments we have left, I want to go through five paths to developing a grateful heart. Because there are certain techniques that we can use to do this. There are different ways we can see the world and perceive things around us to really genuinely be thankful for everything that we have. Uh, So the first one, first path to a grateful heart is learning to be grateful for imperfect gifts. Learn to be grateful for imperfect gifts. Has anyone here ever received an imperfect gift? Anyone? Not, not many of us, apparently. Everything, everything we get in this world is, a, is an imperfect gift. Everything is an imperfect gift. If you uh, came here today married and with your spouse, you're sitting next to an imperfect gift. You can take a look at that gift right now if you want to. You're sitting next to an imperfect gift. But don't get cocky because you're an imperfect gift as well. If you wait until your kids clean their room perfectly, you're never going to praise your kids. We need to learn to be grateful for imperfect gifts because that's all we're getting in this world. Your body is a gift. Your body is a gift. Let's see a show of hands on this one. Uh, Raise your hand if you have an imperfect body. 
If you've got an imperfect body, raise your hand. Quite a few of us on this one. That's better. That's better. Yep. Uh, for those of you who did not raise your hand, we'll have a meeting after this service so that you guys can meet each other and have some perfect kids. <laughs> we got to learn to be grateful for imperfect gifts. It's so easy to look at someone else's body and say, man, if only I had their body or if only I had a different body or, or a perfect body, then I would be grateful. But I need to learn to be grateful for my body, for my mind, for my work, for, all, for my family, for my friends, and for my life, flawed as it may be. We got to learn to be grateful for imperfect gifts. It's so easy to live under the illusion that if we just have the right set of circumstances, if enough things just go right in our lives, it'll produce permanent gratitude. But it's an illusion. And we know that when we look at other people, because we can see that in other people. When a lot of things go right, they still sometimes can be the most bitter, miserable people. And then we see someone who doesn't have anything and is filled with gratitude and kindness. Circumstances have nothing to do with how grateful we are. It has a whole lot more to do with the disposition of our hearts. Are you living a grateful life? Is your heart filled with gratitude? Are you grateful for imperfect gifts? Second one, learn gratitude in times of anxiety and frustration. This isn't very intuitive, but these two things are actually pretty closely connected. We need to learn to be grateful even in times of anxiety and frustration because anxiety and frustration teaches us something about how to be grateful. Imagine with me for just a moment that you find a lump on your body. You go into the doctor, get a bunch of tests done. You're filled with anxiety for what this could mean for you. This could be uh, devastating for you if the tests come back wrong. Well, you get the test results, everything's totally okay. Your anxiety completely disappears. You're no longer stressed about it. And you're so grateful that that's the case. You're filled with gratitude for a little bit about that. Nothing has changed in the last few weeks. It's all stayed the same, but anxiety has taught you that once you, what you once took for granted is actually a wonderful gift. Are you learning from your times of anxiety? Are you learning when you're stressed? Are you learning when you're frustrated? And then when you feel relief, do you turn back? And do you thank God? And do you take the time to praise him for all the wonderful gifts that you've been taking for granted? I know I sometimes don't. Third one, learn to express openly and honestly. Openly share with other people. Don't make up fake stuff, but it can be such a powerful thing for other people to hear that you're grateful for them. This could be someone in this room right now. This could be uh, a close friend that you haven't been very grateful to lately. This could be your parents. I, it could be your parents got a lot of stuff wrong and that there's a lot of hurt and maybe you need to resolve some things before you can be authentically grateful. But it could be they got a lot of stuff right too and they just need to hear you say thanks. It could be a, a neighbor or a coach that breathed life into you, that cheered you on, that encouraged you and comforted you when you needed it. Or it could be just someone in this room who you just think needs a hug. And you just want to go hug them after this service. Maybe it's time to do something extravagant. Get someone a gift. Write a letter. Make a phone call. Go crazy. It's such a powerful thing when you openly share your gratitude to other people. Fourth, 
devote yourself to worshiping God regularly. And this is one that is especially directed to those of you who have already made a commitment to God and already choose to follow Jesus. Have you devoted yourself to regularly worshiping him and regularly praising him? This is a theme that runs all through the Bible. The psalmist says to God, whenever I enter your gates, I do so in thanksgiving. Paul praises God even while he's in prison. Do you make a habit of regularly worshiping God? You know, I occasionally talk to someone who is part of a small group. I love small groups. Small groups are awesome. Uh, but sometimes I don't know what to say because they'll say, say to me, you know, I'm in a small group and I don't go to the worship service because uh, the small group is meeting all my needs for community. And the hard thing about that for me is that it's kind of missing a big part of the point of the Christian faith. Because Worship isn't a consumer pastime. Worship isn't primarily about meeting our needs. You know, I'm so grateful that we can actually go to church and that there are different needs that are being met. And I'm so, so glad that God meets needs in all different kinds of ways. But that's missing the point of worship. Because worship, it isn't primarily about meeting our needs. And, And I thank God for that because It's because it isn't about us that it allows God to change us. It actually gives us a space to be freed from ourselves. It's incredibly valuable. As a Christian, as a Christ follower, as someone who's made a commitment to God, do you devote yourself to worshiping God individually and corporately? Have you made that commitment? And then the final one, develop the discipline of noticing. Develop the discipline of noticing. Be intentional about noticing all the good things around you. See, ingratitude is really a moral blindness to the fact that life is good. It's a moral blindness to the goodness of being alive, to the joy of work, to the beauty of creation, to the love of friends. It's a blindness to all of that. I want to share kind of a parable with you guys I, and it's going to take a couple minutes, so, so be patient with me. But it's, I think, a, a wonderful example about moral blindness and what that looks like and what shifting it looks like. It's written by a guy named Garrison Kyler. He writes uh, this story about a little Scandinavian village, a, a mythical story. Uh, and it's about a guy named Daryl Tolrud. Daryl Tolrud is mad at his father because Daryl Tolrud is 42 years old and has lived his whole life on his dad's farm. His dad still orders him around as if he were a boy, and his dad won't make out a will to give the farm over to Daryl after the dad dies. Daryl gets more discontent every day, complains, gets irritated with his wife, and becomes short with his kids. Daryl dreams about getting even with his dad. He sees a skunk one day in his dad's barn and starts to feed cat food to the skunk. Daryl hopes that his dad someday will get on the tractor, turn it over, and get blasted with a shot of skunk juice. Then the skunk starts following Daryl, who feeds him such rich food. So Daryl quits, and the skunk disappears. One day, the parents leave, so Daryl goes up to their bedroom. He figures he's adopted, and this is the reason that his dad won't make out as well. Daryl looks into his dad's papers. Their old cat, Lulu, climbs on the dresser, so Daryl pushes the cat off and knocks over a bottle of perfume that spills. As Daryl is cleaning up the spill, he sees some of his dad's old paychecks. 
His dad used to work as a mechanic as well as a farmer. Daryl starts looking through them, and the first one is $45 for a whole week in 1956. That wasn't much for a good mechanic. It was $45 for five kids, which explains all the scrimping and explains why his mom darned socks and canned tomatoes. When Daryl's old man forked over their allowance, he counted the two quarters to make sure that he wasn't overpaying. The paycheck explained why his father was such a pack rat and saved everything. It began to dawn on Daryl that he wasn't adopted. He was their boy, all right, and had inherited their frugality and stoicism. They raised him to bear up under hardship, sadness, disappointment, and disaster. What if you are brought up to be stoic and your life turns out to be lucky? You are in love with your wife and lucky with your children. If life is lovely to you, what then? You're ready to endure trouble and pain, but God sends you love instead. What do you do? Daryl had been worried about inheriting the farm. Meanwhile, God had given six beautiful children to him. What happens if you expect the worst and get the best? He thought, thank you, Lord. Thank you for sending me here to the bedroom. It was wrong for me to come, but thanks for sending me. Daryl heard Lulu tipped in, tiptoe in. When she brushed against his leg, he was sorry for chasing her out. He scratched her head, but it didn't feel cat-like. He looked down and saw the white stripes on its back. The skunk sniffed his hand, wondering where the cat food was. Then it raised its head and sniffed the spilled perfume. It raised its tail, sensing an adversary, walked toward the window and seemed edgy. Daryl said, easy, easy. If he opened the window wider, it might go out on the roof and find a route down the oak tree to the ground. Daryl was opening the window wider when he heard the feet padding upstairs. He hollered, no, Shep, no, and raised his leg to climb out the window. The dog burst into the room, barking. The skunk turned and attacked. Daryl went out the window, but not quite fast enough. He tore off all of his clothes and threw them down on the ground. When he climbed back in, the bedroom smelled so strong that he couldn't bear it. The skunk was under the bed. Daryl ran down to get a, the shotgun and loaded it. He almost was dying of the smell, but crept back into the bedroom. He heard the skunk grunt while trying to squeeze out more juice. Daryl aimed and fired. Fur exploded and the skunk dropped dead. Daryl carried the skunk out and buried it, but that didn't help very much. The deceased was still very much a part of the toll root house when Daryl's parents arrived home a little while later. Daryl sat on the porch wearing only a newspaper. He smelled so bad that he didn't care about modesty. His mom said, oh dear, are you all right? She stopped 20 feet away. She thought he looked odd, but he smelled so bad that she didn't care to come closer. His dad said, you know, Daryl, I think that we're going to take a little vacation. His parents left, but didn't take any clothes with them. That was Tuesday. Daryl has been living at his parents' house all week. But life is good. I'm sure he still believes this. Friends, life is good. It's even better if you stay away from Daryl. We've got to develop the discipline of noticing the goodness of being alive. It is such a gift. It's such a gift. When parents want to elicit a phrase from their kids, they will use a very specific expression. Uh, it's been used for generations. It was used for me with my parents. Uh, when someone does something nice or does a favor or gives a gift to one of your kids, 
usually parents will say, what do you say? My parents would say, Caleb, what do you say to this nice man? Or they would say, Caleb, what do you say to Aunt Cindy for making her lima bean casserole? And even though I didn't like the lima bean casserole, what phrase are they trying to get out of me? Thank you, exactly. They're trying to get me to say thank you. And the idea with that is that it's a mechanical response. All kids know it's not a real question. Parents aren't looking for information there when they want you just to say thank you. But the hope is that we can teach kids a heart of gratitude and to live grateful lives. So I want to do something today, and it's going to take a little bit of participation from everyone. Uh, you, you guys are going to actually have to talk back to me a little bit this morning here. I'm going to need a little help from you guys, but I really think that it could help us leave today more grateful. Basically, life is good. Tonight will end another day in which I've had two eyes, two ears, and a great world around me. Tomorrow will begin another. Why do I get two? So, when you go to bed tonight, what do you say? Thank you. Thank you. We got, we got zero grateful people in the room so far. <laughs> when God opens your eyes again tomorrow morning, and you have yet another day of wakeful living, what do you say? And when you look in the face of someone who knows you and loves you and smiles at you, what do you say? When you eat something that tastes really good and you're so glad that you're able to taste, what do you say? When you tell your hand to do something and it doesn't, what do you say? When you read a book and you're able to contemplate and to think about it, what do you say? When you look out the window and it's a beautiful creation out there that God made just for us, what do you say? When you go to work and you decide to do something and you're able to do it, what do you say? And when you open the Bible and God says to you, I knit you together in your mother's womb before you were even aware of anything. I gave you the day of your birth. I numbered the days of your life. I counted the hairs on your head. I fed you like I feed the little sparrows. I clothed you like I clothed the lilies in the field. I gave you the gifts of friendship. I gave you the gift of a voice that can speak in loud shouts. I gave you the gift of the church and this word where you can learn more about me. Over and above all that, I gave you the ultimate gift of my son who came down from heaven to earth to show you the way. He went from earth to, to the cross to pay the debt for your sins and from the cross to a grave to die the death that you should have died. And then he went back up to heaven again so that you can live forever and ever. When you read that God has given you gift after gift after gift after gift, what do you say? Let's pray. And God, we praise you this morning. We praise you and we thank you. And we want to constantly be praising you because you have given us so many good things, so many gifts in our lives. And we praise you over and over and over for that again, God. Make us grateful people. Help us to come to you and worship and be changed by that. Help us to praise you every single day, to notice all the good things about being alive.
pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.